Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Die Hard. Nothing Lasts Forever was written by Roderick Thorpe and was published in 1979. And the film adaptation Die Hard uh, came out in 1988 and was directed by John McTiernan. We're doing Die Hard, and it's also a patron-requested episode. So just want to say thank you to Maggie for requesting this episode. When Maggie requested this, I was like, oh, this is going to be such a fun one to do. And then as we started looking for episodes to do around the holidays... We were like, this is perfect. Oh, this has to be our Christmas episode for yes, sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> There's not a ton of Christmas adaptations. No. And I think we'll have to talk at the end if this is a Christmas movie or not. Yes. that is a highly... So listen all the way till the end for some very spirited yes, discussion. Because it's a highly contentious... Oh! <laughs> oh! <laughs> a holiday-spirited holiday discussion. Yes, yes. Uh, and we will also be doing a bonus episode on... At least I think Die Hard's two, three, and four. We'll see about five. I'm not sure we'll get around to five. <laughs> you know, the it's ho- a lot of movies to watch. Yeah, the holidays are picking up for us too coming up, so we're gonna try to fit in. I think at least two through four. Yeah. So, um, if you'd like to support us on Patreon, you get access to all of our bonus episodes, and this will be one of them. It'll be coming out um, probably a little bit after Christmas time, mm-hmm. um, and you'll get to hear us talk about all the Die Hard sequels, or at least most of them. <laughs> yeah. The- Probably the ones that matter the most, as far as I've heard. <laughs> yeah. Let's get right into this episode. There's a lot to talk about. And the book begins kind of like how the movie does with the main character. And in the book, his name is Joe Leland. And in yeah. the movie, it's John uh, McCain. McLean. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely you gotta keep not. that in. Don't edit that out. <laughs> um, just so you know, this is actually the unknown backstory of John McCain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he did. He he uh, changed his name just by removing a single letter. No one knew. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You take over, Ian. We're already gonna be confused about the names. I know. Without throwing in John McCain <laughs> as well. Uh, yeah. So I think we're probably gonna just call him. John McClane. Yeah. Throughout the whole episode. I'll try. Instead of, I, we may call him Leland because uh, they keep calling him that throughout the book. So we may get confused. But uh, John McClane. And uh, John is arriving in L.A. on a plane and he's arriving for a holiday party of a relative. Because yeah. who that relative is changes. In the book, he's visiting his daughter, Stephanie. And in the movie, he's visiting his wife, Holly. And in the book... He ends up like flirting and meeting with this flight attendant, Kathy Logan, which seems like very like not connected to the plot and ends up being part of the plot later, which is kind of weird. I'm like, what is like <laughs> it's this flirty flight attendant. Yeah. And I'm like, like she, she's on she's on duty. She's working. Like yeah, she can't like, just let stand a woman there. Work. Yeah, also, it's, it's worth noting that in the book, the main character is much older because he yeah. has an adult daughter. And in the film, you know, Bruce Willis is like in his 30s. So yeah, yeah. So that's another factor as well, which is is interesting. Uh, so yeah, landing in LA. And I love in the film, he gets in, a, he has a limousine pick him up. Yeah. And this is where we're introduced to Argyle. I love Argyle. He, <laughs> he just kicks the movie off so well, I think. Yeah. Uh, I love 
like you know his kind of his just character you you learn about him very quickly that he used to be a taxi driver so Mm -hmm. he's very talkative i love this is a smart way to get information about the main character in a funny and still kind of interesting scene without providing a lot of background story and exposition yeah and the fact that like uh john is riding up front with him because he's probably uncomfortable being in a limo. limo yeah uh so it's just a really good interaction and i actually really love um bruce willis in this scene and just in the movie as a whole but i kind of really love his i guess energy like he's kind of quiet and reserved but you still get the sense like he likes argyle yeah i feel like in a lot of later movies bruce willis just kind of has this like curmudgeony he kind of hates everyone yeah vibe to him too much of like a tough cop uh, persona. Yeah. He definitely has like personality to him in the movie. And he has this like, he, I feel like he's always smirking. Yeah. Like he has this constant like semi smirk that's like <laughs> lingering below the surface. Like he wants to smirk and he's kind of smirking, but like not quite. Like that's, he's just yeah. privately amused a lot. And it does come off and kind of like, and I wouldn't normally say that Bruce Willis is like sexy but he does kind of give off this like sexual energy I'll say yeah he's kind of and you know what I love in the film as he's getting off the plane he kind of has this like flight attendant give him like a kind of a once-over look yeah which I mean I think just establishes he is like an attractive dude but also I feel like it's kind of a nod to the book yeah you know what I mean his (laughs) whole romance romance with Kathy yeah um but yeah I don't know I think Bruce Willis his energy in this film is just like in terms of like his action oriented performances, mm-hmm. like I think this is peak Bruce Willis, in my opinion. Yeah, there's some nuance to his character, yeah. which I like. And I think the way he unravels too as the film goes on is really good. Like he he has this kind of high adrenaline, mm-hmm. like he's not totally calm and collected, like your typical yeah. action hero kind of, you know what I mean? He's kind of freaking out a lot. Yeah. So yeah, he just overall, like on all levels, I think he does well. I agree. And he goes to Nakatomi Plaza. In the film. Is that, am I saying that yes, right? Yes, yeah, okay. Nakatomi. Um, where his wife works. And in the mo- in the book, <laughs> it's a Klaxon Oil Company. Klaxon? Yes, Klaxon. Yeah. Not a great name. I don't know. No, I don't it, love it's very name. close to Exxon. <laughs> Probably intentionally, <laughs> I'd imagine, actually, now that I think about that. Yeah, and it's a holiday party, and he gets there and, you know, kind of meets up with either his wife or his daughter, and everybody's gathered there for this Christmas Eve party. Yeah, his, um, he kind of has a brief, um, kind of fight with his wife. Yeah. And I, I really like, you know, I think this movie does a really good job of, like, kind of building in backstory effectively. Like, you find out in the taxi kind of how she moved out to L.A. for her career and John yeah. couldn't at least right away and it, there's a rift between them. Mm-hmm. When he gets to Nakatomi Plaza, he realizes she's using her maiden name. Yeah, and they end up having a fight about it where he brings it up and kind of throws it in her face and it kind of seems when they first meet up that she's happy to see him and it might be like going better but then he brings up this last name yeah. thing and it feels like a very familiar argument. Yeah. And it might not be that they've had this exact argument before, but the beats of it being the same. Yeah. Where he's kind of not taking her seriously or acting like her moving out to L.A. is, like, not what he expected out of, like, a wife, you know? Yeah, and you can tell he's, like, upset with himself after, too, which I like, you know what I mean? Yeah, Uh, You know, he is a jerk, but he's at least, like, aware of that. You know, that's obviously a problem of his. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think the movie, because, you know, once again, this is a movie where... 
they don't have a lot of screen time together. No. So it's important to try to establish their relationship as well as possible at the start. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting touch to have them be kind of estranged. Yeah. At the beginning instead of, because I think having a devoted wife would also make for a very like, um, exciting movie as well. Cause he's mm-hmm. trying to save her, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. But like, in this way, there's more for them to do, and it feels like there's more with her that's going on, which I like. Yeah, for sure. Uh, his relationship with his daughter is different, for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. it's his daughter. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's just different because the book gets into a backstory of the character, you know, Joe Leland in the book, that is so convoluted, so dense... That I can't even, like, begin to describe how absurd it comes across, I think. And it's worth mentioning that this book, Nothing Lasts Forever, is actually a follow-up to another book that the author wrote called um, The Detective. Mm -hmm. And there was actually a movie made based on it starring Frank Sinatra as well. Yeah. It was a pretty popular movie. But, like, the events of this book are kind of summarized again in this one. And I feel like that's a very fine line that kind of a lot of detective stories have to do sometimes. Yeah. Because often they are kind of, you read them in an order, but a lot of people read them kind of randomly. Mm -hmm. So you want to be able to just pick one up and kind of figure out what's going on. Yeah. It does put us in a weird position because like, you know, should you be able to pick this book up and read it as a standalone? I think yes for like this genre. Um, But also I don't want to like, be too critical of it. I just don't think it handles it in a... Because, like, it gets so deep into, like, his overall... Ba- like, we find out he was a World War II pilot. Yeah. Um, and also that, like, he was a cop. We find out about this case that he was, like, investigating about a man whose penis was cut off. And yeah. then he caught the man and he was killed. But then he found out later that it wasn't the guy. And it was a different guy. And it like ruined his career. Yeah. And then he was like a private detective and his wife died. His wife and him divorced and then she died. Yeah. And he's like very upset about it. Also, he had like a relationship with the widow of the one woman who was the actual criminal for the case that he solved where the wrong guy was convicted and murdered for it. It's very confusing. And it, it I feel like it gives you all of this backstory in like a weird like not in a linear order Mm-mm. and then telling you about things that like have no relevance. Yeah. And I think ultimately that's my biggest gripe is that like he should have just, why is it this character again? Yeah. Because it's not even like a detective story this time no, around. No, no. And I'm like, why did he feel the need to make a follow-up story? Yeah. At least like if you wanted to tell this story, just do a new character and do like a new you know, story that's maybe more relevant because like ultimately you find out all this shit about this character. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, some of it adds up to like his personality, but a lot of it just feels so extraneous. I mean, it does. It gives you a portrait of a man who's kind of had a hard life and is sort of feeling very hopeless and a lot of despair around the future and his relationships. Like he's sort of estranged from his daughter. His wife is dead and divorced and stuff. But I think that this could, this could be a person that has the same exact backstory without like all of this nonsense from the past. Yeah. I think it just gets too into the weeds of like the previous cases. And like, 
I don't know. At one point, it's talking about like his former business partner <laughs> who his wife cheated on him. And then. <laughs> and that like caused strain on their business. And I'm like, why do we need to know this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like a lot of the beginning of this book is devoted to like all this backstory. And I mean, almost none of it factors into the story at all. Yeah, I think, too, an interesting difference between the book and the movie is that of perspective. Mm-hmm. And the book is written from kind of the, not first person exactly, but no. very closely follows limited, limited, limited third. third person. Yeah. So it very closely follows Leland, the main character. And so we don't really know what's going on in the rest of the building um, during the time when like the uh, villains enter the story and, and take all these hostages. And the film gives us that like third point of view. Yeah. And maybe it's only because we've, because the film exists and we see what the story is like with that wider scope. Yeah. But when you read the book, it feels like so forced to be this perspective and like Lee, like, you know, when it's setting up this uh, invasion, you know, yeah, Leland has to notice things beforehand and be like observant. So when things begin, he's like prepared in a sense. Yeah. And like, but a, a lot of what he's, thinking is like just jumping to a lot of weird conclusions and he has to be like an expert on everything Mm -hmm. and making a lot of assumptions that kind of don't make sense but in order for you to know what other people are doing and then you see the film and you're like yeah just show the hostages and show uh gruber and like why are we only getting his limited perspective? Yeah and I think the movie shows us how he's able to kind of slip away yeah. In a way that makes sense. Like, he just takes advantage of distraction, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I like being able to see what's going on elsewhere. It helps keep the story moving, I mm-hmm. think. Um, it can get a little in Leland's head in the book. And it's like, what is actually happening? I yeah, don't know. Yeah, Um, At this point in the story, though, you know, John's at the party and he's kind of off to himself, kind of recouping from his flight. Mm-hmm. And then we get the uh, approaching henchmen. Yeah. And I really love the way this all plays out. Um, You know, seeing the different elements of this kind of like coming in to place. We also get... Uh, I think the beginning of the wonderful Christmas inspired score mm-hmm. for the film, <laughs> which either has like just traces of Christmas music in it or like musical cues or elements or it's just straight Christmas music at points. Yeah. But I really love how they've done this. And of course, the main character just happens to not have his shoes on <laughs> when all this goes down. So he's barefoot. Did you I know you didn't love that in the book. Did you like it better in the film? I mean, I think it. Kind of doesn't make sense in both versions, but I guess it's fine. Yeah, I I liked I thought it was like kind of a quirky reason he doesn't have his shoes on that I thought was kind of funny. Mm -hmm. Um, But I agree when I read it in the book, it felt like more contrived. I don't know, just him talking to the guy at the beginning of the film, I think made it feel more natural. Yeah, I agree. So John escapes uh, the initial rounding up of the um, hostages He gets away to the whatever floor. Uh, The book spends a lot of time explaining all the floors. Yeah. And I'm like, just stop. We're not going to follow. No one cares. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But John basically ends up on the same floor uh, where the 
um, leader of this hostage situation who has different names in the book. He is known as Tony, little Tony, the red what what the last name is gruber no matter what so we can just say Gruber. oh is it okay okay yeah. um he keeps calling him tony in the book so i forgot his last name mm-hmm. so yeah so gruber um the leader of this uh takes the owner of the business uh who's different in both versions too of course mm-hmm. uh takes them up to the end up ending up being on the same floor as john and gruber's interrogating this guy and wanting him to open a vault yeah he refuses or says he can't. Mm-hmm. And this leads to uh, Hans shooting him. Yes. And this is sort of the main character, you know, Leland or uh, McLean, deciding that he's going to kind of stay here and try to help, I think. Yeah, it definitely shows that, like, you know, not that a hostage situation isn't already dangerous, but yeah. like these guys are already willing to kill people. Yeah. And he has a loved one in the building, either his wife or his daughter. Mm-hmm. So he has a, a reason to stay and to try to make sure that she is safe because there's no guarantee that other hostages won't be killed. Let's talk about this scene in the book, because the way it's written is really confusing when the leader of the company, Rivers, in the book is shot. There are... um <laughs> There's a few things about the way this story is written yeah. that are worth mentioning. But yeah, this first the first one that I think is real obvious in this scene is how a lot of things don't make sense or are confusing. Yeah. Like the way this scene breaks down is, you know, beat by beat. Uh, John looks into the hallway and sees two people coming. One of them is Gruber. Yeah. They both have those shoulder bags on. So you're led to believe they're both... Uh, Terrorists. Uh, terrorists. And they're both speaking in German. Yeah. Then he looks out and says that uh, Hans was looking like a, like a child who wanted to kill. And he had... Rivers. Rivers in front of him. That's the owner of the company in the book. Yeah. And I was like... And I thought that was like metaphorical. Yeah. Like, oh, he wants to kill someone and he He'll has this, this man. Guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then it talks about how Gruber puts a gun to his chest and shoots him. And I'm like, wait, he was literally there? Yeah. And I'm like, why, when they were walking down the hall, was the other guy Rivers? Or was Rivers with them? And if Rivers was with them, why didn't it say three he was? People. Yeah, why wasn't it three people? Adding to the confusion is this author keeps referring to guns by their Christian names. <laughs> <laughs> like their first names. He's like, you know, my my friend uh, Browning Gun. Yes. Um, yes. My friend, what is it? Walter. Walter. Walter Gun. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Like, he's not saying that they're guns. He's saying that it's this thing. And I don't know guns. I don't know what they mean. <laughs> like, he's... and, and it, the way it's described, it almost sounds like another person is with them. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, wait, who's Walther? I just assumed that if it was a name I didn't recognize, it was a gun. <laughs> Which, there are characters who pop up randomly in this story. I'm like, mm, is that a gun? Yeah. <laughs> is he talking to a gun on the radio is right Carl now? Is Carl a gun? Is Carl... <laughs> is, uh, what, what's the Crane? There's some oh, yeah. Crane guy who appears for a short time, I'm book. like, is that a gun? Yeah. <laughs> a gun he knew from his past. There are other scenes that are very confusing in the book as well, but I don't know. There's something about the writing style that sometimes you have to go back and reread because it kind of doesn't make sense. That river scene, I read like three times because I'm like, I must be missing something. Yeah. The way this is written, like there's not enough information to understand. Mm-hmm. So there's also, and where's the book? Because I have to read 
I have to read this part because like another aspect of this story is that there's such a weird stream of consciousness uh, writing style in it. Yeah. That is so weird <laughs> for the type of book this is. The only thing I can think of to explain this is that the previous book sounds like it was much more of a detective noir story. Yeah. Which I can almost picture this like weird disjointed style fitting into more. Yeah. But in kind of an action story, it's so odd. This is a paragraph and a single paragraph. Okay. So there's no breaks (laughs) in it. I just want to make that clear as as I read it. Um, uh, This is when he's on the plane and just thinking about shit. The geography books of Leland's childhood had made him believe that the Rockies were America's great unconquerable natural wonder. Prices slightly higher west of the Rockies, the ads used to say. Kathy Logan had grown up on the beach. Leland could remember writing to Karen during the war about the world that would come after. In fact, no one could have imagined it. And here we and here he was going with it, as Logan, the Californian, had just said, playing with the way she expressed herself as much as the cab driver who had done back in the snow in St. Louis. In so many ways, it was still America the Beautiful, just as it always had been. Robert Frost had explained it in in saying we had to become the lands. There was a common denominator inside the people, like the cab driver and Kathy Logan. They were open to themselves, free and not small, which was the best of the American national identity. And if you're still with us, that's literally <laughs> what the book is like. And, and like the cab driver he's mentioning is like was talked about at the beginning of the story. Kathy Logan is the stewardess. But yeah. like even it's all these names being thrown in and even knowing who they are, it makes no sense. I have no idea what the author is talking about here. No, it's so confusing. But like it gets a little better as the story goes, like less of that, I should say. Yeah. But there's a lot of that at the beginning. There are passages in here <laughs> that are fucking amazing and so <laughs> silly. There is one other one. I'm sorry. I just want to read right now since we're reading really dumb. He's, he's lamenting about um, L.A. and just mm-hmm. how much he hates California. There's a real civic pride in Los Angeles, resulting in some of the most beautiful residential neighborhoods in the world. But there's also another factor contributing to the look of this city. The gaudy, screaming money madness that had hold of Stephanie. And it led to such gross public insults as pizza shacks with signs that leered. Had a piece lately? <laughs> you know. <laughs> what is he talking about? <laughs> like a pizza shop that just does a sign yeah. that said, hey, have a slice lately? And he's like, this fucking city. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like I have no idea what's going on. Who half thinks the time. LA is too sexual? I don't know. I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> around this time, <laughs> I'm, I'm moving the conversation. Yeah, no, that's fine. Around this time, he ends up killing his first man in this movie. And yes, book. and it's Carl's brother, <laughs> who we never learn his name, but it's Carl's brother. Carl's brother. Yeah. In Always the, in his brother's shadow, even in death. Even in death. In the book, uh, Leland actually, like, breaks his neck. Yeah. He, like, strangles him and breaks his neck. It's very viscerally described, and I was not about it. In the movie, they both kind of fall down the steps, and Carl's brother hits his head and dies. Yeah. Uh, and so this is kind of his first kerfuffle, uh, especially when, like, you know, when resulting in death. And so yeah. uh, John decides to kind of, like, use this to his advantage. So first of all, he gets uh, Carl's brother's gun. <laughs> 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 um, 
and his walkie-talkie and yeah. some other things. I like this. Like, he see he, he gets the lighter here, mm-hmm. and he uses that later in the vents. So yeah. just kind of establishing the items I like here. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is another part where I think the movie is more effective, where, like, he's kind of doing this thing that you don't understand at first. He puts the body in the elevator, and then he stops the elevator partway down and has to crawl out. And you're like, what is this all for? Yeah. Uh, and it's also he can be on top of the elevator when it gets to the floor. And we don't know that until later. It's like a great reveal. Mm-hmm. But in the book, he's just like, I have to do this thing. And I'm going to describe in a lot of detail how I'm going to try to do it. Yeah. And he wants to try to listen and hear the terrorists and like find out, you know, what their plan is, if he can or any information possible. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So he, you know, gets to listen in. He hears Carl's rage at his brother dying he, he first time he hears gruber he's kind of like writing down names uh so yeah this is kind of like a very smart moment and i love it you know just kind of getting a look into how john's mind works in a way yeah and how twisted he can be with like the message yes <laughs> the ho ho ho, 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 ho. <laughs> yes in both versions he does try to signal for help even though he's not going for help himself, he feels like he has to stay in the building. In the book, he's flashing the lights on the different floors yeah. to try to send uh, an SOS signal. And in the movie, he pulls the fire alarm. And in the movie, the fire alarm is actually called off because they have someone at the front desk and they kind of call 911 are like, oh, it was it was just yeah. an accident, you know. Once again, great that we see like what's going on with the yes. uh uh terrorists, you know, aside from John. Mm-hmm. We get to a part in both stories where the main character is being kind of like chased and he has to crawl into an air shaft to escape, basically. Yeah. And I cannot explain to you how confused I was reading this in the book because I've actually never seen Die Hard until we did the episode. Yeah. So I had no context for the movie. And sometimes having that visual in your head, even if you've just seen it like a long time ago, really helps you understand what what's happening. Yeah. But as I was reading it in the book, literally, I'm like, okay, he has the gun somehow. <laughs> he has a strap somehow yeah and like is trying to crawl like into a i knew he was trying to crawl into a horizontal shaft from a vertical one and like the gun ends up like hitting him on the head but i was like where was it where was the he has a kit bag that he keeps talking about and the position of all of these things was so confusing to me and it wasn't until i was talking to ian about it later that ian was like oh i know it from the movie it's like he uses it Kind of as like a lever, not like a lever, as a... A a T-bar is what they call it in the book. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what that means. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know what else to call it. (laughs) But he basically uses the gun as like leverage kind of to propel himself down. But it was just so confusing in the book. I had no idea what was going on. Yeah, and even when, even though I knew what was going on, it just kind of like... God, it gets so into the It talks about it for too long. Yeah, it talks about it for so long and I'm like... I think the author is, like, so concerned about the reader understanding what's going on and, like, the MacGyvering of the situation and, like, the possible problems that could happen with it and that I'm, like, just get to where we're going faster. Yes. Because even if we are confused, we'll get there faster. And it's not interesting to read about all this, like, 
just the minutia of like the door was this wide Positioning and the gun like this. was this long yeah. and the strap, I connected four of them and um, I don't, it's just not, it's not written in a way that's interesting, which is funny because like we I did an episode on the Martian recently, yeah. which is all about the minutia yeah. of like problem solving, but that book does it in such an interesting, witty and fun way. And it keeps it quick. Yeah, yeah. Like it is in the weeds, but it's like speedy about it. And this was just like such a drag for mm-hmm. like multiple scenes. Like not only this vent scene, but the fire hose scene yeah. later. Oh my God. Um, Just like multi, and like, once again, sometimes you just have no idea what they're even talking about. Yeah. And until you see it, it kind of clicks what they're talking about. But I don't know. I, I don't. I don't feel like it worked for me in this way. I do want to say in the movie, I am like a little skeptical of the fact that he like falls and then manages to catch himself on like the ledge. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny about that. I was reading that um, the shot of him because he misses the first ledge. Yeah. Kind of falls and catches on the second. Mm-hmm. That was an actual mistake really the stuntman actually missed the jump the first time wow and then they intercut the catch like following that like Mm. he caught the next one down i see um which i agree it's kind of like okay if you miss that first one you're probably just gonna you're fine it's a little bit of a suspension of disbelief like i do think it's a good like (gasps) like kind of yeah you know startling moment that i like but i i agree kind of like for him being an everyman Mm mm-hmm People in films, like, I think grip strength is so overestimated. I know, I know. I have no grip strength. No, no one does. <laughs> yeah. Like, even, like, unless you're, like, whatever that dude who, I, I can't even remember. <laughs> Don't even go there. <laughs> Mountain climbers. Oh, the yeah. free solo guys. Yeah, like, unless yeah. you're one of them, uh, you're not going to catch <laughs> a ledge like that. <laughs> There's, like, a kind of extended part here with him crawling into the horizontal air shaft And then Carl and company are like following him and like shooting at the vents and it's very tense. And then finally Carl is pulled away. But at one point we're like, oh my God, he's going to actually like shoot it. I love, because he's just like trapped in the vent and like Carl starts like jabbing up at the, the vents. Yeah, it was like beautifully done. Yeah. Let's introduce one of our supporting cast of characters, Sergeant Powell. Yeah, so... uh John did manage to get a uh, a radio in in the book. Like I think it was just the flashing lights. Yeah, that alerted the police. That someone heard, and then a cop came, and that began the radio communication. But um, in the film, it was the original broadcast. John did, which, by the way, him talking to those uh, two women yeah. who were working the station was so funny. I know they're like, this is an emerge like only for emergencies. And what does he say? He's like, like, no shit, lady. Yeah. <laughs> No fucking shit. That's like part of like his high energy that I really like his franticness. (laughs) Um, But eventually uh, Al shows up to Nakatomi Plaza to kind of like scope things out. Mm -hmm. And once again, another great scene of suspense outside of John's perspective where he enters and we know the doorman is really a henchman. A decoy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I kind of like this him having to get his attention somehow. Yeah. But also not like reveal himself too much and put himself in danger, which he solves by just throwing one of the guys he killed out the window, <laughs> which is really funny. I it's love great. it. It's great. The shot the film uses of like, you see the body drop before. Yeah. Al does. <laughs> and 
he also throws a body out the window in the book, but this is definitely played more for like the funniness of yeah. it falling on the police car. <laughs> and then he like starts reversing and then like the people, the terrorists in the building know that the jig is up at this point. So they start shooting at Powell's car yeah. and he's like reversing, trying to get out of there and like calling for help on the radio. And John it's is great. The, the great line of welcome to the party, pal. Yeah. And he has so many good lines in this that so are like many. kind of, like they're kind of cheesy action lines, but I think Bruce Willis just sells them really well where they're not too like over the top, I think. Yeah, I agree. And now that we're starting to talk about Sergeant Powell, who is a black character in both the book and the movie, I just want to talk about black characters a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll start with the movie and just say that I really love the supporting black characters that are in this. You know, we have Sergeant Powell who, you know, is an older black man, um, just like kind of funny, but in a more straight way, I guess. Yeah. He's very, also just like a very supportive person. Like he's very there for John throughout the film, which Mm -hmm. I really like. Then we have Argyle who... Literally this whole time where he could have been calling for help is just like partying in the back of the limo. (laughs) He's such just all the cuts to him. Yeah. Like either ignorant of what's going on or just finding out what's going on and everything. They're just so funny. Wonderful. And then we also have the Codebreaker character who is part of the villains. Yeah. um, Who is just there to like break the code. And I really like his representation on the bad guy team yeah you know? yeah and also him being like a code breaker he's yeah. not just a thug he's you know hacking computer hacking hacker circuit breaker <laughs> <laughs> um which brings me to the book <laughs> um i mean wow. this book was written in 1979 which doesn't excuse it um but it does give some context the book starts out from the beginning where leland is in a taxi when he's going to the airport and there's a line here that said, like so many blacks, the driver (laughs) had the gift of language. He wanted to know what went through a person's mind and just starting off that way, (laughs) just saying if I don't think anyone should ever say the words like so many blacks or use anybody, any like minority or ethnic or racial group in that context. Like just, don't I don't think that there. ever is the start of a good sentence. No, it's not. <laughs> like so many blank. And there's like another part later where he first is talking to Sergeant Powell mm-hmm. that starts off um, and says, come in, a voice whispered. It was a young black voice, deep with no trace of ghetto. Several things wrong with that. Um, <laughs> just being, I feel like the need to identify immediately being like, oh, it was a black voice. You know, that's such a boomer thing to do, too. Like, because I mean, his character is constantly like he was a black man. Like, it's not always like overtly racist, but it's always just like, why are we? Why aren't you saying that about all the white people? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And And then like the no trace of ghetto. It's just not great. And like there are multiple examples of that in this book. So I just feel like it's it doesn't handle that super well. There's like a kind of unfortunate reference to homosexuality as well in the book. Yeah. With like his like tragic backstory and it, it just being so weird. So I just like don't love that, especially that being so prominent at the beginning. Yeah, it was just I swear to God, like in the first 15 pages, he acknowledges four different people being black. Yeah. And like one of the guys who works at the airport, um, what's his name? Like Lopez. 
He's like, I talked to a black man named Lopez, but he must have been like half Mexican. And he's like, why isn't he in L.A.? <laughs> like, dude. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? Like, is this just what you think of, like, on a day to day basis? Yeah. it's. I don't love it. No. Uh, yeah. So I, I really do, you know, love the supporting cast in the film and like the variety of like kind of black characters that we get. Mm-hmm. I will say the one thing that I wish was included from the book is um, having women as part of the villain group. I agree. I feel like it was almost equal women. In fact, he seemed to, yeah, it was probably equal. He kills a lot of women. He kills a lot of women. (laughs) Which I don't love that, but I I like that the villains have women in their groups. Well, here's my stance. Um, Maybe we should be more conscientious of killing men in the same way we are of killing women. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, killing in general is bad. Exactly. But like in action films, it's just like, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're maimed. And it's just like, when it's men, you kind of don't think about it. But then like when it's a woman, you're suddenly like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, you know, (laughs) you can argue that like... It's a glorification of violence either way. Yeah, yeah. So I'd almost argue we should be like, you know, maybe more hesitant about when men are killed too. Yes. But regardless, yeah, I'm like... If there's going to be henchmen who are just being murdered left and right, let some of them be women. Yeah. Why not? (laughs) There's even a funny acknowledgement in the book of this where, like, I think Al kind of is like, oh, that's disgusting when he hears that he's killing women. And he, what did he say? Like, stop being so old fashioned. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I don't know how self-aware of a comment that was or not, but it made me chuckle. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, John McClane is on the radio and ends up talking to Hans Gruber in this really great first contact scene, I think, between them. Yeah. And let's just talk first about Alan Rickman, the light that he is yes. to our lives. Perfect. In this movie. He's wonderful. I love that he's just so charismatic and charming almost. Mm-hmm. And even like Holly kind of has a scene with him where it seems like there might be like sexual tension between them. And maybe I'm reading into that. <laughs> I think maybe a little. <laughs> but like he just is so charismatic and he's so interesting. And even the way that he talks is so I just love the way that Alan Rickman talks. Like he's so deliberate. He's a Shakespearean actor. Yeah. So he really brings that like gravitas to um, his performance here. Like, it's just a joy to watch him. Even the one scene when he first arrives at Nakatomi Plaza with all the hostages and he's looking for uh, Takagi. Mm-hmm. And he starts, like, walking among them, like, naming off all these facts about him. Yeah. Trying to, like, you know, smoke him out almost. And just Alan Rickman, like, listing facts. Yeah, It's almost like a Neil Gaiman, you know what I mean, when he does an audiobook. Like, I could just mm-hmm. listen to him talk about anything. Yeah, he has a great voice and just so much presence. And I love this interaction between him and John McClane because it's kind of them going back and forth. And it's very much like, you know, Gruber is this cultured, uh, <laughs> like, villain, mm-hmm. you know? And... Versus John McClane is this kind of like blue collared, tough cop, you know? Yeah. And I love this juxtaposition. Um, And they also have just like a funny, like, uh, banter between them, like a jokiness. Maybe they have sexual tension. I think they do, (laughs) genuinely. Um, We get the yippee-ki-yay motherfucker. Um, I also wanted to talk here a little bit because I think this movie's interesting and kind of... um, 
a film history context almost because this film kind of came out at a time, I think it was like kind of towards the tail end of the ultra masculine action hero type story. Um, And actually this director also did Predator, Mm -hmm. um, which interestingly enough, like featured a lot of like overly buff uh, action heroes like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but also kind of subverted that trope as well. So I think this director, and he also did the last action hero, which I also think kind of subverts action movie tropes. Mm -hmm. So I think this director has a lot of understanding of um, kind of the structure and DNA of action films. Yeah. And I think this scene in particular, their first discussion highlights a lot of this because he kind of says, oh, you've a, you're a man who's seen one too many action films. Like, you've seen Rambo the too much. The cowboy movies. You're a cowboy. You're John Wayne. Uh, later on, um, John also references, like, Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're fully acknowledging, like, this is almost a regular man in a world full of these types of action films. And yeah. kind of contrasting him with that. Mm-hmm. I think by today's standards, when we go back and watch Die Hard, I don't think it maybe feels super different or groundbreaking in any way. Yeah. Um, But I think for the time, it was very unique to see an action film starring someone like Bruce Willis, mm-hmm. who's like a handsome dude in good shape. But and like a cop. And a cop, but like clearly someone way in over their head, like in fighting scenes, like it's very just kind of grappling. Yeah. And like kind of gritty and He's not of, snapping necks left and right. No, fighting dirty kind of. Um so this movie really made a big impact in that way, I think, especially on Hollywood action films. Yeah. Kind of introducing a new kind of changing the way we think of them, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was very aware of it too, I guess is what I'm trying to say with all the references. Yeah, and there aren't a lot of like really elaborate like hand-to-hand combat scenes with like a lot of like fight choreography. You know no, like you were yeah. saying? It is very kind of like using what he has and kind of just having to make do and improvise a yeah. lot. So, And I think it'll be really interesting doing our bonus episode at the history of the Die Hard to films. Compare. Yeah, and kind of seeing how it kind of changed into what it was not. Trying to, like, make it a parody of itself a bit. In a way, yeah. So. Meanwhile, the police have showed up. But they're not... (laughs) Which is always good. They're not doing much. We have our friend Sergeant Powell, who is kind of on the main character's side and is like, I believe you that you're in this building and you're trying to take out these guys and save the hostages. But we have another officer who shows up, uh, Dwayne Robinson, who just, like, hates the main character from the start. And it's sort of like, how do we know he's not with the terrorists? And, like, who is this guy? You know, it's funny is when we was watching the film, we're like, man, this guy has such principal energy to him. <laughs> and that's because he was the principal from Breakfast Club. I know. Club. I read I, that, too. I didn't notice it at the time, but neither. I was reading later about it. Like, er, like at the end of the movie, he's like, you, gotta, you have a lot of explaining to do, mister. <laughs> and I'm like, man, he needs to be in charge of, like, a middle school. And you're like, oh, yes. <laughs> it makes so much, it, like, clicked for me. <laughs> <laughs> but like I don't know he's clearly like has no control over the situation and he's like brushing off Al yeah and like all the info and I love it because like John is also just like I don't want to talk to you put Al back on yeah <laughs> he's like you're an idiot but the cop like he ends up sending in like all these troops and of course the terrorists end up kind of they have like rocket launchers so they're like launching a counterattack yeah and it's all going to shit and this ends up leading 
uh, John McLe- John McLean. You got it. I got it. <laughs> to dropping some C4 on their asses. Yeah. You know, just really letting them have it. <laughs> I, I loved this, um, the way he kind of like intervenes in this situation and kind yeah. of like... It's such an over-the-top moment, but, like, it feels justified. Mm-hmm. And this is in high contrast to the book. Because in the book, he does the he exact does same thing. He just does it for no reason? Yeah, he just chooses to do it. And I was even confused at first because, like, once again, a confusing part of the book. <laughs> I thought he dropped it on an elevator that was on the 32nd floor where the hostages were. <laughs> and I was like, what wow. the fuck is he doing? <laughs> and then it was only way later that I found out it was like, oh, the 17th floor. I don't know. But yeah, like for a moment, I'm like, he's going to kill everyone. Yeah, it's it's weird. Let's talk about, though, the villains a little bit more, because um, we've been calling them the terrorists. But are they? They might not be. I mean, I guess you could call anyone doing anything a terrorist. So <laughs> like, what does it really mean? Yeah, so they're I think we find out early on in the film when Gruber's asking about the uh, the vault yeah. um, to Takagi that they just are after money. Like, yeah. that's their sole motivation. Mm-hmm. It's not revealed to the police or anyone else for a long time that's what they're after. Yeah, and in fact, he kind of distracts the police and FBI for a while by being like, release all our, like, compatriots in all these prisons all over the world. And he's like, I don't know. He's like, this I read about in Time magazine. Yeah. Such a great line. They just want money. In the book, it's actually more complicated. The terrorists are from, like, a German group, kind of loosely affiliated with, like, the German autumn. Like, uh, it was called, like, R something. It was an actual, like, German mm. terrorist group that was active in, like, the 70s and 80s. And sort of loosely, re- like, referring to that, but it kind of being, like, a very far-left extremist group. Yeah. And this kind of ties in because the book is talking about, like, communists and, like, socialists. <sighs> Boy, does it. And all that nonsense. But then you kind of find out that this group is targeting this klaxon oil because they're actually selling military equipment guns ammunition all this stuff to chile and at this time like the military has taken over chile i might be saying that no no you've got yeah (laughs) um which is really interesting because i read about this um in a book called the house of the spirits but It's actually really sad because the U.S. was involved in this military takeover in this country and a lot of people were killed and died. And so the involvement of this company that his daughter is working for, so supposedly his daughter knew about this, yeah, is kind of this dark tone in the story. And I actually kind of like it. I did too. Um, Yeah, because like we don't find out about this detail i guess until much later in the book yeah and at this point like um john has like killed so many people he's kind of like and has taken a mental toll from that like it's really like fucking with him yeah and he just seems like so disillusioned Mm -hmm. and to find out like that this is going on with his daughter and the company she works at and i don't know like it was interesting I really felt like at the beginning of the story, there's so much talked about. Like, there's a flashback scene to, like, a um, a conference that he's at where a guy goes on a tangent for, like, yeah. three pages about, like, communists, I think. Yeah. That's very vague and weird and, like, very nationalist. Yeah. Um, 
And it seems like Leland doesn't agree with that. Kind of. So it feels like they're trying to set up a counterpoint here and to show different sides of things. I just don't feel like it's super well done. I really love the way how it's revealed at the end, and I think it's impactful. But I actually feel like it's too late in the story to drop it because there hasn't been enough to really make it feel as important and i wish it had been more part of the story i kind of wish because like yeah at this point in the story like and other things that we'll get into it almost becomes like a weird anti-action story like at first it seems like i'm a badass and i'm gonna kill all the bad guys and Mm -hmm. i'm like dirty and injured but like (laughs) but then as it goes it's like this is all really fucked up yeah um, and this kind of adds to that. And mm-hmm. I just think it, it should have gone just farther into this kind of like dark, weird, twisted take. Yeah. On the story. Yeah. So let's check in on Ellis, the co-worker of either Holly or Stephanie. He's quickly running out of cocaine. <laughs> Things are not going well for him. <laughs> he decides that he can talk to these terrorists. In the book, it's like we don't know if he approaches them or if he's just kind of he, I don't know. It's not. It's not as clear. It's one of those moments where uh, John just gets the call kind of out of nowhere, and it's Ellis, and he has to infer a lot of things. Like, yeah. oh, Ellis is aware. Like, he's he hasn't told them yet about my daughter, but he, he could. will. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one of those moments where it's like just a lot of John assuming things. Yeah. Uh, but in the film version. Uh, we get the smarmiest Ellis imaginable, high on cocaine. Being like, I'm going to strike a deal with these guys. This scene is so great. Oh I love God, it. It's so funny. My favorite part is when he's like kind of talking to John on the walkie talkie and trying to convince him to come down. He's like, listen, John, if you don't come down, they're going to kill me. And he like winks at Hans, <laughs> like, <laughs> like gives him a thumbs, thumbs up. <laughs> And Alan Rickman's just kind of glaring at him. Yeah. And of course, John McClane knows that Ellis is going to get killed. Yeah. He knows he's way over his head. Yeah. And he's like, listen, stop, stop. And of course, it doesn't really work. And it's like, did he let him die? Was it just inevitable that Ellis would be killed? Probably. Who would want Ellis to live? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, um, I, I just love Ellis in this story, just him. He gets like a Coke in this scene. Yeah. He's like, oh, thanks. He gets a last drink. <laughs> yeah. Gets Coke and Coke. Oh, yeah. I like that. I <laughs> bet that was totally intentional. <laughs> There's also a cool scene in the movie where we get an actual face off between Hans and John. Oh, my God. Yes. This So this scene actually came about... I think late in the script. It seemed kind of odd, I will say. Did you? Yeah. I was like, wait, why is Hans doing like doing something now? Yeah. Well, it happened because they didn't know until I think they started even working on the film that Alan Rickman could do a good uh, American accent. Uh. And they were like, oh, we have to like use this somehow. (laughs) And they thought about this scene. And I just I love this scene so much. Um and I think it, it speaks to the movie as a whole. I think this is one of the best paced action films yeah. ever. It, it keeps it like moving very quickly. Yeah, the way it um, keeps introducing elements <clears throat> like them shooting Tagaki. Yeah. And then uh, so like, oh, shit, things are serious now. And then the cops get involved. Yeah. Um, and then this scene happens and like it keeps kind of refreshing things. Yeah. And in this scene, you're like, oh, my God, like he's got him at gunpoint. And then. 
suddenly when um, Han starts talking in the American accent, it's yeah. like so surprising yeah. and so great. Mm-hmm. And I love how that's even flipped. Yes. When you find out later that John was like onto him the whole time. Yeah. It's a very cool scene between them because you can tell that both of them are trying to like get one over on the other a bit. And I love that they actually get to confront each other face before like the final confrontation. I think that is cool. I also love it too because um, once again, just smart script writing where this is the scene where um, Hans notices he doesn't have shoes on and yeah. kind of like acknowledges this and they laugh about it. Because mm-hmm. um, in the book, a similar thing happens where uh, John is going up the steps and he steps on um, a broken glass that they set out for him as a trap Mm -hmm. and which was smart but i was kind of like when did they know he didn't have well they said they found his coat and shoes okay because i guess they realized that no one in the hostages was missing like their shoes but like that could be anybody's shoes it could be an extra pair of shoes i don't know it's kind of a big leap to just put the glass everywhere. I know. I definitely agree. Um, And like, I didn't remember that. Whereas like the film does a good job of like him noticing that. And then very shortly after uh, there's a shootout. And this is when uh, Hans gets shoots out all the glass and has John, you know, have to, he has to run over it. Yeah. His feet are super gross and bloody. We have a very upsetting scene about him picking glass out of his foot. (laughs) And in the book, he's even more fucked up. He got like shot in the thigh and like, he kind of got like a concussion from the gun hitting his head at one point. He keeps like landing on his spine. I feel like they tell <laughs> us many times that he's landing on his back or like gets the wind knocked out of him. He's just super, super fucked up in the book. Yeah. And it keeps escalating. And he's old too. He's yeah, not like a young guy. I know. <laughs> Where at first he's like, oh man, I'm going to feel like he ran, rams, rams his shoulder into something. He's like, I'm going to be feeling that for like a week. And yeah. then... Like, after the glass thing, he's like, I'm not going to be able to walk for, like, two weeks after this. And, like, by the end of the book, he's, like, just, like, shuffling down the steps. And he's like, I'm not going to get out of the hospital for a month. (laughs) If he survives. Yeah, if he lives. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, I just love... The barefoot thing is kind of great. And I love this being used against him in in this moment, in both versions. Yeah. We get some interesting radio times in the book because Leland has the radio and he's <laughs> communicating with the outside world and the police is communicating with the police and they figure out who he is. And he actually ends up talking with Kathy Logan, the flight attendant. Boy, this sure made me realize I have no idea how radios work. <laughs> like, I know there's different channels, but like. Then someone's like uh, blocking a channel at one point. Yeah. And the way they patch him into other people. um, Boy, I just sure didn't know what was going on a lot of the time. Also, Taco Bill joins the story, who is just some rogue DJ, like coming in on the radio being like, you got this, Joe. We believe in you. And I'm (laughs) like, who are you? And at one point. Uh, he threatens Hans yeah. about like the daughters. Like, if you touch her, I'll kill you myself. I'm like, who? Taco are- Bill. Who are you? Taco Bill. Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> who are you? It's just really strange. But that also led me to believe. I'm like, why aren't more people doing this? If it like you could just patch in on a radio. Like, why isn't everyone? Just- everyone trying to call in. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't understand radio technology. <laughs> no, and the radio is still a thing in the movie. But he's mostly just talking to the police and to the villains. There is kind of a me media news angle though where we see like a newscaster with like a news van showing up and trying to get like footage 
of everything that's going on. We also have a really, really shitty scene where the reporter goes to the house of Holly's kids. Yeah. And literally tells the woman who is watching them that he's going to call immigration and report her if she doesn't let him into the house, which is some straight up bullshit. Yeah. I love that he gets punched in the face at the end. I know. It's and great. like Holly, I don't even think would have, she wouldn't have known what he did. No. But she just like can feel his vibes yeah. and just like slugs him. <laughs> well, I think she saw it because she saw him interviewing them on TV, her kids on TV. I guess TV. that's true. She would have known. He and she's like, you bitch. He would have had to have pulled some shit. Yeah. By the way. The daughter in the film is the cutest, like, Aww, little girl. she is. When she answers the phone and She's the like, Lucy McLean speaking. <laughs> <laughs> also, I, like, keep forgetting this, but um, his grandchildren are also in the hostage Ian. situation in the book. Ian, <laughs> listen. <laughs> he kept talking about his grandchildren, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I know you have them, but why do you keep saying you have to save them? Because I swear to God, and I could have missed it, but I swear to God, there was never any mention that the grandchildren were also in the building at the beginning. He certainly does not encounter them. No. And, and she, like, Stephanie doesn't talk about them at the beginning. No. Nobody mentions that they're in the building, but then randomly he keeps saying he has to save his daughter and his grandchildren. And I thought he was just saying that, like, to save them from losing their mom or something. Yeah. But then you find out that they're actually in the building and it was not established. It <laughs> no, was not established. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it took me a while to like catch on to that and be like, oh yeah, I guess I guess the children are here. I was like, did I know I that? I was so confused. Yeah, just terribly established. Uh, also like in the book, he's weirdly like, he's concerned about his daughter, but also like, I feel like the first thing he thinks about her is like, Ugh, like, I'm really worried about her. She's probably going to die. <laughs> like, she's really dumb. He's kind of, like, shitting on her. He also says that she's too fat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's like, um, she's always been five pounds overweight, but she's clearly, like, ten pounds overweight now. Yeah. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Not great. Five pounds? Yeah. Five pounds? <laughs> <laughs> Why would anybody say that about their daughter? I, I don't. I have no clue. Um, God, yeah. Where are, where are we in the story? We're on the roof. We're on the roof. Okay. Um, yeah, so in the book, uh, John just kind of ends up on the roof and he's camping out. He's kind of trapped up there, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they do kind of lock him up there. Mm -hmm. And he knows at this point the FBI is involved and they're going to fly helicopters in and, like, probably... Like, try to infiltrate the roof slash shoot, and he knows that they're the terrorists are equipped to handle this, and they're going to blow up the chopper. Yeah. And no one's listening to him, so now he's like, okay, how am I going to escape the roof when the chopper blows up? And he's pretty convinced that the police know that he could be killed in the fire and, like, don't care, basically. Yeah. So he's like, I have to figure out a way to survive the roof and to get off the roof when this all starts happening. It takes a really long time to get there, though. And we wait for a long time because it's, like, kind of night. And then they're, like, kind of waiting for Don to send the choppers. So it's this standoff and not a lot's happening. He's talking to people on the radio. And then he's devising this, like, apparatus with the uh, fire hose, mm -hmm. which was another very, like, confusing scene. Yeah, it just takes so fucking long. And, like, the description and just... 
yeah, he ends up like what he thought hap- would happen happens. Like a chopper gets blown up and he has to like jump off the roof. And yeah. similar to the movie of mm-hmm. how he kind of gets back in the building generally. But yeah, um, the film, though, just once again, takes all the elements that are at play mm-hmm. and just kind of creates this really haphazard but great situation. Yeah. Where the hostages are being funneled onto the roof and John finds out they're going to blow the roof up with C4. Mm -hmm. Um, So he gets up there to try to like herd them back down Mm -hmm. and no one's listening to him. So he has to start shooting the gun in the air, which I love because he's just so like done with everything. Yeah. And then, of course, the chopper sees him and is like, oh, we've got a terrorist. And they start shooting at him. Yeah. And then he has to jump off the roof before the chopper blows up mm-hmm. and the roof blows up. Yes. Um, it just escalates things so well. Mm-hmm. And logically, too, like, I think everything that happens makes sense. It does. Another thing that makes sense, too, is the way that they count on the FBI cutting the power. Yeah. To the building in the movie. And that actually triggers the last defense mechanism of the vault. Yeah. So like them putting on the front that this is a terrorist attack is all on purpose to like have certain protocols be put in place. Mm -hmm. So the vault can open. Yeah. And similarly, they're counting on blowing up the roof with a chopper on it to disguise like they want to. They they want people to think they're dead. Yeah. So it all fits into the plan really well, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's great because, like, this is kind of, like, kind of a really wild scene. Like, you're kind of pushing the boundaries of, like, this is an everyman yeah. in this kind of, like, realistic situation. Like, it's kind of pushing that. But I think the fact that, like, it feels like everything is justified, mm-hmm. that it, like, gets away with it. Yeah, it does feel well like plotted and also well like um what's the word about like people and places and uh, blocked blocked yes, blocked, yes. Well blocked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i agree um yeah so similar parts in both book and movie to the rooftop meanwhile uh argyle has just been like partying in the parking garage um but <laughs> yeah he, where's argyle right he now? does get a moment where he realizes what is happening sees the code breaker guy trying to like take a truck and ends up crashing the limo into the truck <laughs> and then punching him. So he gets like his moment to shine. I loved this. Yeah. yeah. Argyle's like such a great character. Uh, and I'm glad he had like a moment. Yeah, me too. Yeah. To take someone out. <laughs> um, Gruber at this point in both versions has figured out the main character's connection to Stephanie or Holly. So takes her as a hostage. Yeah, and, uh, you know, John kind of finds out about this, and this is kind of, like, leading into the kind of, like, final confrontation, I'll say. Yeah. Um, But in the book, he kills a few more people, just, like, you know. And I feel like the book, it's weird. It, like, isn't glorifying the violence, like, it's, but it is... Like, it feels kind of gratuitous, like, him just murdering a lot of people. Yeah. But it's also very self-aware of, like, this is very fucked up and dark. Yeah. It's not just, like, an action movie, typically, where it's, like, you're dead, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, he seems emotionally shaken by all these murders, but yet he's very eager to do another murder. Yeah, but, like, what's the point, though? You know? Yeah. I I I never felt like this book was trying to say something like I felt like it it was trying but it never really did yeah I never quite understood what like 
Yeah. Is it just kind of supposed to be an action story or is it supposed to be kind of like denouncing this kind of violence? Um, I guess you could interpret it that way. I don't think you're supposed to like think that John is like a great guy in the book. No. Or faultless or like doing everything he has to do. Yeah. But in the film, so he finally finds Gruber. He's got Mm -hmm. one henchman left and he's got Holly at gunpoint. Yeah. And of course we get the classic gun taped to the back scene. With Christmas tape. With Christmas tape. (laughs) Once again... The movie plays it off so well because you just see him looking at the tape. Yeah. And you don't know what he's doing until you get that great shot camera dip to Mm -hmm. his back and you see the gun. Yeah. The maniacal laughter is great. I love Mm -hmm. the sleigh bells, the demented sleigh bells that are jingling (laughs) in this scene. But yeah, he reaches for his gun. He shoots the one guy, Mm -hmm. shoots Gruber, and we get the tense window scene. Yeah. He Gruber has Holly by the arm. And then by the watch, which was the watch that she got for being in her job, I guess. And Ellis was very excited about it at the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And this is just like, I don't know. I love action movies when they kind of push the moments like this to their extreme where like he shot Gruber. Surely that's the end of this. And then like, oh, no, he's got a hold of like, you know, they keep pushing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And this shot of. Alan Rickman is amazing. It's really good. He's actually trying to pull his gun around. Yeah. To shoot either, I think at John or Holly, like he's trying to take one of them down with him and he's pulling the gun around and then John is able to like unclip the watch and then he starts falling in his face like as he falls, as he realizes that he's falling. It's so sad because I love Alan Rickman <laughs> and I don't want him see him, to see him in pain. Um, from what I've read, this was like a real wire drop, I think, outside the building. Ugh. And I, I I need to like probably look into this more. I've heard that the director actually dropped Alan Rickman like earlier than the countdown was making him think. Mm. Like they counted like five Four, and then they dropped him yeah. to get that, like, oh, shit reaction from him. Yeah. And I heard Alan Rickman was pissed about it because he was like, I'm an actor. Let me, Let like, me act. I can act. Let me do it. I know. Directors always trying to, like, fuck with their actors yeah. to get reactions out of them. And it's like, let them do their job, man. Yeah. This is why you pay them and not just do a random dude. Yeah. But he falls and dies. And then, you know, that he and Holly reunite and they're making out. It's amazing. They're so happy. They're coming out of the building. Everything is fine, except... Everything's not fine. Carl's not dead. (laughs) Which, he was, like, hung. Yeah. By, like, a chain. I don't know... How did he get out? One. And two, how is he not dead? (laughs) I know. First part, how is he out? Second part, how is he not dead when he comes out? You know, when you come out and you're already dead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I know. I had similar, because I remember this part from watching the movie previously, but I forgot it was Carl. And I'm like, what guy did they forget? Because like... You know, and then it was Carl. and I'm like, oh, okay. I guess he's not dead. (laughs) Okay, Carl. Um, And but this is where we get um, Al's redemption, which let's talk about what he's redeeming himself for. Yes. So Sergeant Powell, Al, accidentally on purpose shot (laughs) a 13 year old child because he thought he was a grown man with a gun. And if you say that this wasn't a black child... 
like you'd be mistaken even though they don't say that it's a black kid it's absolutely a black kid and the fact that like this actually happened tamir rice yeah you know it's just like very it's very like flippantly brushed off and it's just used as like backstory there was another book that we read where one of the main characters or one of the side characters backstory was that he shot a black kid and like to just use that as like kind of just to fill out or flesh out a character, but like not really addressing it at all, not really going into it and just kind of like, oh yeah, this is like his motivation. It's just like so callous and cruel and like terrible and I'm not cool with it. It's super tone deaf. And it's not that the story like doesn't take it seriously, but like you said, it's just kind of like his backstory of a side character and like his redemption or like his arc is that like he has to learn to shoot people again. Yeah. Because how can he be a cop if he's not like willing to just like shoot people? Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. Like it, it just, I, I'm sure at the time it didn't come across so like callous, but like just by today's standards and like what we know now about, all the real life incidents of that occurring. It's just, it's hard to just see it happen and not wince and like brush it off. And I will say too, like, yes, we're in a time now where there's more attention on the police killing of black people, but this has been going on for years and years. And it was definitely going on in the eighties when this movie was made. And it was definitely happening, you know, all over the country to 13 year old black kids. So like, for them to even have made it back then is still not excusable. It is. And it, it definitely takes the stance of like, you know, cops have it tough and like yeah. making Feel a mistake. Feel bad for them. Yeah, for sure. Um, also, I just have to say the actor who plays Al, Reginald Vell Johnson, I'm not the biggest fan of him I thought he in was this good. role. He, he's not bad. He's certainly not bad. I just kind of feel like his line. He, He's a little overly hammy mm. with kind of like his line delivery and when he's talking to John and kind of just he's like almost overly earnest where he's like, you stick it out, man. Like we're coming in for you and like we're going to get you. And like, I don't know. It almost feels like maybe not tongue in cheek enough or it's I don't know. Something about the vibe of that, like every time like a scene like that happened where Al was kind of like pep talking John. Yeah. It just kind of felt like maybe a little too cheesy in a way. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it was intentional or if it was just him giving like a sincere performance or not, but I mean, I like his performance and I also really love the scenes that he's with, uh, Dwayne Robinson. And he's just like in the background, like being like this bitch. Right? I, I like those <laughs> scenes a lot too. Yeah. I don't know. And like, You know, it's nothing that's, like, ruining or, like, overly distracting from the film or anything like that. I just feel like his piece or his performance just almost doesn't quite fit for me in a Mm -hmm. way. So I just had to, I had to be, sit here and be sincere about how I felt about that. All right. So. (laughs) Let's talk about the book ending. And we usually talk about the book ending first, but we wanted to save it because you, a lot of you might not be familiar with how the book ends. And it's actually kind of shocking because there's this confrontation with Gruber, just like in the movie. And he has Stephanie, his daughter, and Stephanie falls. The exact same scenario where yeah. Gruber falls out the window, grabs her, has the hold of the watch. Yeah. Except she just falls out to the window death. with her, with him. Yeah. yeah. And dies. Yeah. And for, you know, Leland to try to be saving her this whole story, 
And to have her literally fall to her death at the end, which is like such a terrible way to die, um, is just so like shocking and upsetting. And you're just like, oh my God, this is like really intense. Yeah. And it kind of, and this was like shortly after like the whole like revelation about like the oil company is like financing this like fascist regime regime in Chile and like, and then this happens and I'm like, is this kind of supposed to be a whole condemnation of like, like she deserved it. Well, I was going to say like the action hero trope or Mm. role because part of him is like, I mean, first of all, like part of him is like, uh, she should have listened to me. Yeah. He says that she should have got away from him so he could have had like a clear shot and then he wouldn't have like pulled her out of the building when he yeah. fell. And so I'm first like, he blames her. He blames her for her own death. But then he he's like, I mean, maybe if I had just like not gone on this like one man army mission, yeah. like and just had surrendered myself immediately or like gone to the police yeah maybe she would still be alive mm-hmm. and i was like fuck like that's some pretty heavy and kind of interesting like an interesting way to like take this like the, his whole mission yeah his whole reason for killing all these people and then in kind of a, almost like a realistic scenario of like it's almost like you imagine it playing out like it doesn't die hard. The yeah. Film. Yeah. Except like it gets botched yeah. and she ends up getting pulled out the window by him. And it mm-hmm. almost feels like what would happen in real life if some dude tried to like. Yeah. Be the hero. Yeah. Um, And so I kind of like weirdly like this. I felt like the whole story was kind of like doing a magic trick almost. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, this is like weird and dark and interesting. I like it, too. And in fact, after this, he goes up to the vault and ends up, like, taking out all this money, all this, like, you know, secret, like, you know, black market money. And he just throws it out the window. Yeah. And it's kind of what the terrorists wanted to do. And he finds that out, too, before he, like, killed them all. And, you know, he just, like, feels very disillusioned. And like you were saying, Ian, he almost thinks, like, if he hadn't tried to do all this or if he hadn't been there at all, that his daughter would still be alive and maybe like everything would be okay. And like, maybe the terrorists would have like just got what they wanted and like, let the people go, you know? Yeah. Or the cops could have like handled it differently. But I really like that. This is just kind of like, he did all this and it's ultimately kind of for nothing. Yeah. And there's also a lot of parallels drawn between like him and the terrorists. Yeah. Like at one point, he looks like terrifying Mm -hmm. kind of like the movie where he's covered in blood and soot and like, yeah. And Carl, who's still alive at this point in the book also looks like that because he survived the chair bomb blast. Um, and someone thought he was Carl at first. Mm -hmm. Uh, so clearly drawing this parallel, like, is he doing anything better than these guys? Yeah. Isn't he just like them? And like, he certainly kills like them you know yeah or worse than them he killed a lot of people he kills a lot of people a lot of young people a lot of very young people yeah there's also this part at the end a similar like carl situation where carl comes out and tries to like kill him at the end but like sergeant powell kind of pushes Dwayne robinson the other cop into carl's line of fire (laughs) to take the bullet for leland i and I'm like, was this guy trying to, like, get a promotion? And it's like, if he dies, I'm, like, promoted next. <laughs> it was kind of confusingly written, but I think that's what happened. Yeah, once again, it was, like, unclear, kind of. But that's certainly the way it came across to us the first time we read it. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, which was like super out of nowhere and kind of dark. Mm-hmm. The book is just very, very dark at the end. And like, it's not clear that he's actually going to survive this evening. No, John gets shot again, like in the upper thigh. Yeah. And they have to like tourniquet his leg and like throw him into an ambulance. And like, I don't know. It just ends on a really like nihilistic kind of note. Yeah. Which I mean, you know, I really didn't enjoy this book up until this point. But like, at least the ending was like, wow, I was not expecting this. And it's yeah, like... Yeah, takes it in a new direction. I kind of wish it had, like, although at the end it still maybe seems like justifying what he did, like, it kind of, like, on one hand, after his daughter dies... Yeah. He finds, like, another one of the terrorists, a woman, and just shoots her in the head. Yeah. Just kind of in For a, no reason. Yeah, kind of like... And I don't think it paints it very, like... Certainly not, like, a noble thing or anything. No. And at that point, I was like, wow, I kind of like how dark this is going. Yeah. It does kind of seem to, like, backtrack a little near the end when he gets back onto the ground floor. And they're kind of like, hey, man, good job. You did what you had to. Mm -hmm. And and he thinks about, like, oh, I want to be there for my kids and, like, help raise. Now that they have no mother because of me. Yeah, yeah. It kind of seems to be backtracking a little bit on that idea mm-hmm. it seemed interesting because like he was it looked like he was gonna hunt down carl for a minute you know at the very end yeah and i kind of wish it had just ended there with him like going down into the building to find carl and kind of like it's still not over for him yeah, yeah. i wish it had ended there and i think i really would have liked the ending yeah so. i think this is leading into a discussion on which one we liked better yeah i think and i if it needs to be said, I think um, Die Hard, the yeah. film. I like the movie better, too. It's fun. It's an action film that, like, really takes advantage of, like, the actors, mm-hmm. the sets, the direction, everything about it. I love the fact that it's all just in one building. It keeps it really tight and it keeps it moving. I will say that I really liked the ending of the book, like you were saying, too. I felt like it did something very different and the tone was something that I kind of liked because it does sort of draw attention to this like action hero idea and flip it on its head and show us kind of how horrifying and terrible it can be and how quickly it can go to shit. But I just feel like it's too little too late because so much of the book is so boring. Oh yeah. So like confusing and just poorly done that it can't quite save it. And I do prefer the movie. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious because, um, this is your first time watching it. Did you feel like it lived up to the mythos that Die Hard the film has at this point. I think it did. I think it was good. I enjoyed watching it. Yeah. I'd watch it again. Yeah. You know? Um, I think there's it's funny. Like there's just a lot to want want to make me come back. Alan Rickman definitely being part of that. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time and I was really kind of super happy with how well it still holds up. Yeah. It's not just, oh, a movie that was really good for its time. It's like the humor and the action and like I think the plotting and pacing are top notch. I love Bruce Willison and Alan Rickman. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And like you said, the ending of the book was interesting, but it was just such a long drag to get there. I agree. And I just want to read our patron Maggie's thoughts on this Um. since she requested this episode. So she said, I suggested Die Hard as a knee-jerk reaction to finding out it was a book without fully appreciating the implications for you and Ian. Sorry. I had not seen this movie in a long time and was mostly familiar with it from the bits and pieces I would see on the cleaned-up version on TV as a kid. 
In recent years, I've been more aware of it because of Jake Peralta's obsession with it from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> I watched it again in preparation for your episode, and for a lot of reasons, found it both fun and frustrating. While I haven't read the entire book, I think it comes from a genre of male-coded fiction in the realm of James Bond and Jason Bourne. I view these works as an entry point into talking about the kinds of male characters that are idealized, the type of masculinity it promotes, and also what kind of emotion men are allowed to feel. Uh, also, last thing, young Alan Rickman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that young 41-year-old Alan Rickman. <laughs> <laughs> but I think she brings up a good point, too, about like the masculinity and like the redemption through violence aspect that we do really touched on a little bit with Powell, but it's kind of similar for John McClane as well, that he is able to find redemption in his marriage through this violence. Similarly, yeah. Powell is able to find redemption through killing Carl from killing this kid. So like this idea <laughs> yeah. that like violence redeems men is not great. I Yeah, I agree. Um, so we, we decided which is better Booker movie, but now <laughs> is this a Christmas movie, Adina? A very contentious topic. Okay, so I have my thoughts on this. I think it can be a Christmas movie. I don't think it's a classic Christmas film. It doesn't really strike me as a movie that has Christmas as a really central theme of its story. Yeah. This movie could take place at a different time of year, and it would be fine. Yeah. It would just be fine. And so I also want to say, like, I was thinking about other movies that are like, not quite Christmas movies, but take place at Christmas time. And I was thinking of the movie Carol, which we did an episode on. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I would not call that a Christmas movie. So I think if you say that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, you would have to say that Carol is also a Christmas mm, movie. Yeah. But on the other hand, we're doing this as a Christmas episode, so you can does, think what you want. Does that make you a hypocrite? <laughs> Maybe. I've decided that I am going to say, yes, it is a Christmas movie. Oh, good. We're disagreeing. I, yeah. Because, like, I think there are a lot of movies that take place during Christmas time. But yeah. I think Die Hard leans more into it than a lot of those films. Like, the musical score yeah. is kind of seeped in, like, Christmas music. So that's, like, an element. Uh, you know, even the end credits music is just Christmas music. And even if you think about it, the only reason he was able to tape the gun to his back was because there is packing materials out for Christmas. I mean, he did it in the book, though. True, but that was just like masking tape. Like, you know, I'm just (laughs) saying in the film context, he only saw it when it was out. Yeah. You know what I mean? So would he have had that idea in the film if it was not out? I mean, he had the idea in the book. I'm talking (laughs) about the film, Adina. Okay, well, do you think think Carol is a Christmas movie? um, I don't think Carol leans into it as much. Hmm, Even though everything about it from like the time that they meet each other to like all their like interactions are Christmas themed. But that's just at Christmas. Hmm. I think like the fact that Die Hard uses like the music of Christmas for me, like that might be like a very small little like thing to say it is or isn't. Um, Like I would be willing to argue like Carol can be a Christmas movie too. Like I I don't know, but um, I think Die Hard leans into it more than I was expecting it to. Mm. So just because I have to say yes or no, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> well, Otherwise, I'm going to would... say no. Write into us whether you agree with me or Ian, which one of us is right. <laughs> yeah, I want to know. The, the movie's definitely better. There's no question about oh, that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Let's do lightning round. Let's do lightning. First up for lightning round, I just want to read you like one line from the book. And I meant to read it during the episode, but it just like didn't fit 
in the episode. So here it is. Okay. This is when he jumped off the roof with the fire hose and then like crashes into the building and the hose starts to like pull him out the window again. So it says the hose began to fall away. Leland pushed at it, trying to twist against thin air, the thin air to get deeper into the room. He was screaming again, his fear and rage filling him completely with the heat of an orgasm. (laughs) You know, when you're like about to fall out a window and your rage fills you (laughs) and you just like explode. just jizz in your pants. Exactly. (laughs) And I'm like, why would this be in here? Why would anyone write this sentence? I don't know why. (laughs) Oh my God. I forgot that line. That line is amazing. (laughs) Um, something that just made me laugh about the book too was all its descriptions of the office interior just makes me think of like all the poor decorating choices people (laughs) made like in the eighties. Yeah. Cause there's so much description of like carpet. Like they talk about like, Oh, the plush carpet of this secretary's office. And I'm like, Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) And then also like the drop ceiling tiles. Yes. Like at one point he has to like crawl through the drop ceiling tiles. And then they also get like blown up. Like (laughs) when gunfire is going off and like just all this like eighties decorating for like offices in particular. I was just like, Ugh, this is also like, I'm glad we've like learned our lessons. This is not great. <laughs> I want to mention from the movie, we didn't get to talk about Johnson and Johnson, the FBI agents. Oh, oh, not the company. <laughs> yeah, no, literally. Agent Johnson and Agent Johnson, no relation. Not related. Um, They are terrible and it's kind of funny and I love that they're in it for like such a short time and then they're like taken out immediately. I know. They like get into a helicopter. They're going to like firebomb the terrorists and then they immediately get taken out but there's a funny line where i forget which johnson is like yeah i think in this scenario we lose 20 to 25 percent of the hostages and the other guy's like i'm okay with that (laughs) (laughs) yeah like he's i love how shitty they are but like they're also like kind of endearing and you kind of love them yeah and then they die immediately (laughs) (laughs) um our introduction to uh, John slash Joe in the book yeah. is um he is in a taxi on his way in a ta- driven by a black man. Yes. It's stated. He, he is black. He is black. <laughs> um, on his way to the airport, the taxi driver gets in a fender bender and then tries to take off because he has to get Joe to the airport in time. Because he's going to miss his flight. Yeah. And he tells the other driver, like, meet me at the airport. And the guy's like, no, stop. Which, I mean, like, it's totally justified. Also, he calls him the N-word. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. Uh, That part is not justified. (laughs) So then the taxi takes off and the other guy takes off after him. And then Joe is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pull my gun out and point it at this man in a high-speed pursuit. Yeah. Trying to get to the airport and be like, back off, brother. I have a flight to catch and I'm mad about yeah, it. Yeah, it's so weird. Also, for some reason in the book, he has a uh, police officer's badge, but it's fake. <laughs> it has a message written on the back, like, this man is a prick, and it was like a gag gift. Yeah. But he uses it like a real badge. A lot. He uses a lot. It a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> no. But it's like... Such a plot point, and I'm like, I feel like this should have been explained more. He's like, I got it as a gift once. Yeah. I'm like, okay. Okay. 
That's it for lightning round. Thank you for listening to this episode. Once again, thank you, Maggie, for requesting this episode. This was really fun to do. I'm glad we got to talk about Die Hard. I'm honestly glad I got to watch Die Hard finally. I've yeah. never seen it before. So I know. Who who would have thought that this was a book originally? Yeah. Not me. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want to find us, we are on Twitter. We are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. Uh, you can find all of these social media handles by just going to our website, CoverToCredits.com. We have all those linked um, at the top. So. You can also find us on Patreon from our website, or you can go directly to Patreon and support us, and you'll get access to all those bonus episodes and the new one that's going to be coming out about all the extra Die Hard movies. And of course, Almost you want to go <laughs> <laughs> You want to go on this Die Hard journey with us, so definitely tune in if you can. And if you... Um, would like to support us another way. Another great way is to give us a star rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps other people find our podcast and to listen. So as always, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Happy holidays. Yeah. Bye. Bye.